If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Uh, This week we are beginning a brief three-week sermon series uh, where we are looking at our responsibilities in our life together as a church family. Oh, as a church family. Um, As a church family. Uh, So this week we're going to look at our responsibilities in gathering together for worship. And next week we're going to look at our responsibilities in growing together uh, in discipleships and in, rela- in, in discipleship and in relationships with one another. And then the last week we're going to look at our responsibilities in going together in both our evangelism in the world around us as well as in our work in missions that others around the world might hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is our plan for today as well as for the next three weeks. And I pray that God would bless our church family in the midst of this brief sermon series. And I ask you to join me in praying that as well for us, that this would be a time of growth in our church family. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Before we get into the word, it is uh, a a right and fitting and uh, uh, even called for that we take our time to the Lord in prayer and ask his mercy upon us through his word. So would you pray with me? God, as we now open your word, we do so with hearts that need you uh, more than we realize, but also, Lord, we do so praying to you, our God, who is more gracious, more loving, more gentle, more kind, more uh, good than our hearts believe much of the time. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our great need and show us your great wisdom as you have given us to one another that we can gather together to be built up in the faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back uh, in 2016, the Powerball reached $1.586 billion. I don't know if any of you remember that. I think it's the highest uh, amount the Powerball has ever gotten to. Now, uh, I have never played the lottery. I've never been particularly uh, desirous to play the lottery. But if I am honest with you, that week when the amount got to close to $2 billion, or closer to $2 billion than it was to $1 billion, I started to think, you know, there's a lot of good that could be done with that money. Um, and so I, I remember that the drawing was on either a Tuesday or Wednesday night or something, and you had to buy your ticket a, a day or two beforehand. And so I remember that I um, was going to bed one night, and I remember tickets had to be bought by like 10 p.m. that night. And so I was going to bed, I'd had a long day, I was tired, and I thought to myself, oh yeah, the Powerball thing's happening, isn't it? Um, do I want to go buy a ticket? You know, there's, you know, there's missionaries that could be supported, there's hungry people that could be fed, there, you know, there's a lot of good that I could do with that money. But I was tired and I was already in bed. So what do you you think? Do you think I got out of bed and went and got a ticket? No, 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 I didn't. Um, I was too tired. And and your chances of winning that are, you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning like twice in one day with the weather like this than you do of actually winning that thing. So I rolled over and went to bed. But, you know, the interesting thing that I thought about as I was preparing this sermon is that whether it be like a lottery winning or a new job or promotion or uh, maybe, maybe, uh, finding your way into to an inheritance. Uh, the, whenever a, a potential good financial windfall is coming our way, we are very quick 
to imagine all the ways in which we would spend that money. We're quick to imagine the ways that that money would change our lives and how we would use it in our minds for good purposes. But we're slow to realize how our lives ought to look in light of the good news of the gospel. And particularly in light of Jesus' death on the cross, sometimes we're slow to realize how that ought to produce change in our lives. You know, if I, if, as, as I was considering what, what the possibility of myself winning the Powerball, there was nothing in, my, in me that thought, if I won this, my life would go on exactly the same way. Yet, for some of us, and even though we have become Christians, our lives can continue on in largely the same way as before we were Christians. We can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ as death on the cross in our place is good news, but we can be slow to realize or to embrace how it demonstrably changes us, changes our calendars, changes our perspective on life. So let's take Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, and let's read this together and see how the author of Hebrews and God tells us to think about the cross and the work that it has accomplished for us. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, what I believe Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, calls us towards, what I believe it shows us, is that our salvation is fully secured before God, or fully secured in Jesus. So we must resolutely draw near to him and faithfully draw near to one another. Let me say that again. Our salvation before God is fully secured in Jesus and his work on the cross. Therefore, we must resolutely draw near to him and faithfully draw near to one another. We're going to see this by looking at uh, what Jesus has accomplished in his cross in verses 19 to 21, and then we're going to pull three points of application for that in verses 22, 23, and 24, and 25. So what Jesus has accomplished, and then three points of application. So first, what Jesus has accomplished. First point we see is that through Jesus Christ, we draw near to God. The author of Hebrews, if you're, we probably have varying levels of familiarity with the book of Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews is doing uh, throughout his book, is he, or throughout his letter to these Christians he's writing to, is he's explaining how various uh, themes and symbols and uh, 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 points of the Old Testament anticipate Jesus Christ and how they ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the work that he would accomplish. It is as if the Old Testament is the small little sample table at like a BJ's or a Costco kind of place, although I think that's probably a thing of 
COVID days or pre-COVID days, everybody kind of reaching their hands in and eating from the sample table. But it's as if the Old Testament is the little sample and Jesus Christ is the full feast that we are invited to. And so he's writing to an audience that they've, they've tasted the samples, but he wants them to see and to taste the feast in Jesus Christ. And so you see in verses 19 to 21, follow along as I read that. He writes, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So let me pause here. So Old Testament, you had temple, you had a, 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 a you had rooms that were set apart as, 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 uh, as, as holy and as, 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 as kept apart from sinful man who could not enter into the presence of God apart from a sacrifice, apart from a, a mediating presence that could bring man to God. Um, and so you had this whole elaborate Old Testament system of temple and sacrifices and priests who would make sacrifices and they would have to be repeated uh, at various times in the year in order that the people of God could have their sins atoned for before God and be able to enter into his presence. But now the, we reach a point where in Jesus Christ, he is the final, perfect, complete sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Therefore, what the author of Hebrews is saying, we have confidence to enter the holy places, enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. That's verse 19, you see that. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. If you remember the, uh, the stories in the Gospels, of, uh, particularly in the book of Matthew, where Jesus, when he died on the cross, the, the, the massive curtain in the temple was ripped apart. The curtain that separated God from where man could go is ripped apart, but it was ripped apart from top to bottom. And so the, old te- the, the author of Hebrews is using this illustration to say that Jesus, through his death on the cross, He was the one that ripped that curtain apart that we could come before God through Jesus, through his flesh. And then verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we no longer have to have these Old Testament priests who who are uh, these human mediators who can only go before God, but Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He is God. He is man. He is God fully percent, fully 100 percent, and fully man 100 percent. And it is through him that we come before God. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that because of all of this that Jesus has accomplished, we draw near to God. And so as we think of Jesus' death on the cross, I want you to consider that there are two realities, two realities that we must be mindful of in, in thinking how we understand Christ's cross. We will either see the cross of Christ as the road by which we come to God, thinking medically, Through the cross, we receive a heart transplant. We are made new. We are given new life. Or the cross of Christ will be a hurdle by which we can't get to God. Thinking of another medical example, the cross of Christ, it will either be a heart transplant or it will be, if you've ever had an MRI or a CAT scan, I think it is, where they put the dye in you that flows through you and and, and reveals the, the true health of your body. The cross of Christ will either be the heart transplant or the dye that reveals your desperate need for God, but also the the unhealth of your soul and also reveals the sickness that you are unwilling to come to Christ for healing for. So first of which, this heart transplant idea, the cross will be the road by which we come to God. You see, what the cross of Jesus Christ forces us to do is it forces us to understand ourselves. See, in the cross, we gain greater understanding of ourselves, of our sin before God. And in the cross, we recognize 
our need for the cross because what the cross of Jesus Christ does is it reveals to us is that Jesus did not come to live a, a good life and then things kind of veered off to the side and a bunch of bad people killed him. But that was not intended or that, not, that was not planned or that was, that, that was an alternative to what he came to do. No, the cross actually reveals the divine plan of God to address the deepest problem with our souls, and that is our own sin against God. And so what the cross does is it shows us our need for a new heart because our, our old heart is plagued by, is, is, is even spiritually dead in sin against God. In our state before we come to Christ, we cannot enter into the presence of God. Uh, we cannot enter into that holy state, enter that holy presence of God, because we, it, it would be more possible for us to stare at the sun itself and not go blind than to enter into the presence of a holy God and be able to stand. So the cross is powerful, not because it's something that I observe, but it's actually powerful because it's something of paramount importance to me. That's the refrain of all of us as Christians. So I want to ask you this morning, do you approach the cross of Christ with an attitude of reverence? Okay, it's important. It's significant. It requires careful reflection. Or with an attitude of repentance. Recognizing the cross is not something I observe, but the cross is something that was actually done in part by me in my sin. And when you recognize this attitude of repentance, it is then whereby you find this new heart and you find this grace of God that is the means by which through Christ we can now come before God and enter into his presence. So the cross will either be a means by which we receive a new heart, or it'll be the means by which we can't get to God. I gave this illustration of how it can be this dye that exposes the sickness of our, of, our, of our souls. And here's what I mean. If the cross is where Jesus Christ died for our sins, the cross is where ourselves and our God and the avenue by which these are connected, it, 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 the cross exposes the depth and the ugliness of our sin. The truth of the matter is that apart from Christ, all of us in our souls, we have this position where we would rather try to make our way to God, or perhaps more accurately stated, tell God how he can make his way to us. Have you ever found yourself telling God the ways by which he needs to work in order for you to be able to worship him, or for you to be able to trust him? And oftentimes, that is not, the answer to that question is not by God, I need you to show me the cross more vividly. It's more like, God, I need you to work in my life in this way or in this direction. But what the cross reveals to us is that the greatest need we have before God is atonement for our sin. Therefore, what the cross shows us is that however we might think that we can make ourselves right before God, whether living a good morally upright life, maybe recycling, maybe, maybe trying to do what is right in the world to stave off ch climate change or to, to vote rightly or to give ourselves to the appropriate causes or... Or, or, or situations that our, our world needs our attention. Whatever it may be, we might find ways that we think we can make ourselves right with God apart from doing the thing that we actually need to do, and that is finding ourselves in need of a new heart before God. If somebody was in need of a heart transplant, it would do, do themselves no good to take a Benadryl or to take a Tylenol and think that that is going to solve the problem. And yet when we are unwilling to address or unwilling to consider the sinfulness of our own hearts, all of our good deeds, all of the things that we try to do to, in our minds, justify ourselves before God, they are nothing but Benadryl or Tylenol in the face of bodies that need a new heart. 
And so it is at the cross that we don't get a pat on the back. It is at the cross that we find new life. But the cross is not only the place where Jesus Christ died, but the cross demands our death. It does not demand our death physically, but it demands our death spiritually, but no less significantly than physically. And so what Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 21 shows us is that the road to God is paved with the blood of Christ. And so the solution to that work of that die and exposing the disease of our sin and our need for God is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ not only exposes, but it also heals. And so for all of us who have come to God through Christ and his cross, the curtain of his flesh ripped into the great high priest Jesus reigning over us. Now what do we do as recipients of new hearts? If you were given a terminal sentence and then you received some life-saving operation or some life-saving treatment that gave you a new outlook, a new, a, a new life, you would probably view life and view your world a little differently than you did previously. And so what does the cross do to our hearts? As ones who can enter into the Holy of Holies before God, as ones who can come before His presence not with trepidation, but with gladness as children coming before a Father who loves them through the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, let us see three points of application and how this ought to transform us in our lives. First, let us confidently draw near to Christ. Look at verse 22. In fact, I'll read verses 19 to 21 again so we can get the train of thought, and then the first point of application is verse 22. So look at this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, great high priest over the house of God, because of all this, you see the author is saying, therefore, since we have this, since we have this, since we have this, now he holds up verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In Jesus Christ, in this message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has come and accomplished in our place, we enter into an understanding of ourselves that otherwise we would not have. I don't know if any of you, my high school had this thing. I don't know if any of you had schools, high school, college, or wherever, or maybe in a medical setting it could happen. But I, I don't know if this was the proper term for them, but it's what we called them. We called them drunk goggles. And what they would do is they'd have, they, there were these goggles that blurred everything up and they would, have you, they would have us put them on, and, and we would try to walk around with them. And the, and the, the purpose of them was as a deterrent uh, against drinking, or, or definitely a deterrent against drinking and driving, uh, because what it says is if, if you are in a drunken state, you cannot see uh, uh, very clearly at all. And so it would, it would always blow our minds to have the drunk goggles on and then take the drunk goggles off and be able to see clearly. See, what the message of the cross does is the message of the cross actually removes the drunk goggles from all of us as we try to understand ourselves and our world in which we find ourselves. Here's what I mean. Apart from seeing Christ and his cross, and in fact, apart from our faith and our repentance before Christ uh, and the work he has done in the cross, we have a, a, a fake or an inaccurate understanding of reality and of ourselves and of our world. We see evil, we see 
wrong. We see injustice. We see atrocities. We see terror. We see all the things that this world marks as evil and wrong. And yet, our solution for these is oftentimes only half-hearted. Is oftentimes only to a certain measure. The problem with our world is not that we need to try to love one another better, although loving one another can be good. The problem with our world is that all of us who, who, who obstruct or who hinder uh, and, and cause pain and cause hardship in our world, we don't need to try to be better alone. We actually need a heart that makes us better. And so what in verse 22 is showing us is the author of Hebrews is saying, let us draw near to Christ with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And so when we reach this point of clarity, recognizing that the cross condemns us in ways in which we may not have understood otherwise, and in ways which are even a little more painful or a little more acute than we would feel comfortable with, what the cross does is it, is it accuses, and then, it, then, it, then it, it comforts, and it brings healing to us. And so our response to the cross of Christ and seeing the evil done by us in our sins, Him dying for us, is to draw not away from Christ in our fear, but to draw near to Christ in His love by which He suffered for us. And so when we reach this point of clarity and we see the cross as something not just done for us, but by done, done by us, our only appropriate response is to draw near to Christ because in, in the cross of Christ, we are sure of two things. We are sure of Christ's work and we are sure of our need for His work. And so verse 22 tells us, in light of the cross, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, I want to see this, this, see this uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What the cross of Christ demands of us is not only that we come before Christ, uh, 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 but that we come before Christ clearly. That we acknowledge our sin before God. That we acknowledge the, the things that we might hide from one another or might try to keep from others, the cross welcomes us to bring them fully before God, knowing that Jesus Christ sees all of our warts that even no one else sees, but not only does he see these warts, but he has died for these and he has, he has atoned for our sins. And so in him, we bring our warts, but he meets us in welcome. And so what the cross calls us to is actually to a new life. Where, where our evil consciences, even the worst that we could have mustered, is atoned for in His cross. And in Christ, we find newness of life. And so we draw near to Him, and then this language even of our bodies washed with pure water. I think that's symbolizing or that's referencing baptism, which we're going to see in just a few moments this morning. A dear sister of ours, Beth Reagan, is going to be baptized. And so I encourage you, as she, before she is baptized, to listen to her testimony that she will share and observe the symbolism of the, of the act where baptism is an uh, external illustration of an internal transformation. Baptism signifies this new life that our sister Beth has received. So the question that I want to ask us for is, is as we consider do we or do we not draw near to Christ, is are you different in light of the cross? Not are you perfect. None of us are perfect. None of us are close to perfect. But are you different than you were when you came to Christ? Are you more gracious? Are you more patient? Are you moving towards greater humility? All things that Tim prayed just a few moments ago. 
How do you do it loving those who wear you out? If your heart is not one of growth, may I encourage you towards greater consideration of Christ and His cross and of your great need for His cross. The cross is not only our means, our way to heaven, but it is the way that God works heaven out in our hearts. We don't just come to Christ confidently, but we come to Christ clearly, bringing all of the ugliness that we would not want anyone else to see, we bring it to Him, and we know that He hears and that He welcomes us because of His death in our place. But we don't just confidently draw near to Christ and His cross in light of the work that He has accomplished. We don't just confidently draw near, but we constantly draw near. We frequently draw near. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This, this imagery of holding fast this confession, let us, let, us, let us consistently hold near to that which we believe about Jesus Christ. And this is not just holding near to what we believe doctrinally, as if we hold to, to a steadfast doctrinal purity. That is important. Steadfast doctrinal clarity, that is important. But we hold fast in doctrinal, or not only in doctrinal purity, but in devotion of life. We actually believe the things that we say. We actually believe the things that we sing, and we apply these to our lives. You see, here's the thing. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' cross and His death in our place, it is not only the the introduction by which we meet God, but the gospel is the voice by which we commune with God. Here's, Here's what I mean by that. When we pray, we we pray things like, in Jesus' name. That's how we conclude our prayers. And we don't just do that because I don't know what else to say, how to conclude it. You need a place to wrap it up. I don't know how. Okay, I'll say in Jesus' name, and that ends it. No, what, what that signifies is as we go before God the Father in our prayers, we are coming before Him through Jesus Christ. And so it is through the death of Christ that we can say, okay, God, I'm coming before You, and I bear this sin that weighs down my heart. I bear these fears about a circumstances or a situation in my life that gives me great anxiety. I bear this overwhelming sense of burden about something that is, that is, that is, that is marching me towards a state of being undone. And I don't know what to do. We come before God not having to dress ourselves up, but recognizing our Savior who was totally undressed and died naked on the cross, recognizing that we can be totally vulnerable before God. And so the gospel becomes a message by which we confess our sin, but it also becomes a message by which we cling closely to Christ and we say, God, in this moment, in this fear, in this anxiety, in this burden, I desperately cling to you through Christ and I know in the promise of the gospel that I am secure in him. So the gospel is not just this introduction to God. The gospel is this message of comfort before God. And the greatest thing that our prayer and our taking our needs before God is is not only in communicating our needs to Him, but the greatest way in which He ministers to us is in this, we hear the message of the Gospel again and again and again. The language of love whereby we first heard the message of the cross is the voice of love by which God ministers to us in our great need over and over again as we draw near to Him consistently through Jesus Christ and His cross. So a question that I was struck by as I prepared was I thought, okay, I know these truths so certainly but I live in these truths so little. I don't take verse 23 seriously very often. 
this language, without wavering. I waver. I, I, I teeter on the brink. I get undone and worry about a certain something that could happen in the future that oftentimes doesn't happen. My mind goes to the worst, the worst outcome, the worst possible event that could unfold as I face a, tro- a, a trial or a situation. But the audience in Hebrews was in the same boat. They faced some kind of objection to their faithful walk, some kind of hurdle, some kind of hindrance to their faithful walk as Christians. It was easier for them to believe than to practice. But what the author of Hebrews shows us is that correct belief must spur faithful practice. So a good practice for us would be to every day try to remind ourselves of the promises of the gospel in verses 19 to 21. And then as we struggle with anger, as we struggle with greed, as we deal with our own pride, as we deal with shortness with a spouse or with a child or with a parent or with a co-worker, may we be reminded of our great need for the gospel. And may we not be like our ancestors, Adam and Eve, who when God was seeking, themselves, seeking them out, they covered themselves up and hid. But may we be reminded that God seeks us out and he welcomes us into his presence by virtue of Christ and what he has accomplished. And so he welcomes us to bring that situation or that confusion that causes us great despair. Or even he welcomes us to bring that sin that continues to plague our hearts Why did I lash out at that person again? Why did I act in that prideful arrogance towards that individual near to me again? And the gospel invites us to lay these on Christ yet again and to know that he doesn't look upon us and say, why are you continuing to do this? But he looks upon us and says, come to me. Come to me and find rest. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And find peace in the work that I have accomplished in your place. The danger for us who are in a church setting like this, or maybe you consider yourself to be fairly religious, the danger for us is that we can talk all the right things, but we don't believe or we don't practice the right things. One time I was at the gym, and I was working out for, I don't know, an hour, a little over an hour, And I saw this group of guys that were, a few of them were working out, but there was one guy who, for literally the whole hour, hour 15 that I was there working out, he he was in the workout clothes, he was physically in the gym, but all he was doing was talking and laughing and, and, and having fun with his buddies who were all working out. I did not see him lift one weight, get on one treadmill, do anything for the whole time that we were at the gym. He looked the part. But he was not growing in that which he needed to grow in. He was not applying actually to his life that which he was there to do. And the danger for us as Christians is to sing and to profess these truths of the gospel. But when it comes to our lives and actually applying them and asking God to take this heart, that, to, to transform our hearts by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that becomes more difficult. Because it actually requires us to lay ourselves before God and ask him to do the surgery on us that we would prefer not to be done. But we find and we know that in the surgery of God, applying the grace of the cross of Christ to our hearts and giving us new hearts and new life in him, that operation that we so desperately don't want is actually the operation that brings new life to our souls and is the manner by which we are brought to God himself. And so you may read verses 22 and 23 and say, okay, how do I do this? The author of Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart. Okay, how do I do this? 
Let us draw near, uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Okay, how do I do this? You're doing really good, author of Hebrews, at telling us, how, telling us what to do, but now tell me how to do it. Well, I think that's what we get in the last let us in verses 24 and 25. And it is not one that I think many of us would expect. So we don't just draw near to Christ confidently, and we don't just draw near to Christ confidently. But lastly, in verses 24 and 25, we see let us commit to draw near to one another. Let us commit to draw near to gathering together for worship each week. Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I would submit before you that our growth, your growth as a Christian, maybe you've, you've, you've arrived here today and you felt kind of stagnant. You felt kind of like your, your, your growth as a Christian or your walk in, as a follower of Jesus has kind of been stuck, like, 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 you're, like you're stuck in quicksand and you can't get out. I would submit to you that the greatest way by which we grow is by coming together as a body and worshiping together on a regular weekly basis. It is as if the author of Hebrews is holding up before us that, that we are all part of, the, of, a, of a solar system of, of, of saints and the sun is the gathering together and we grow, we revolve, we have our activity, we, we, do our, 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 we function healthily in our orbit around the gathering together of the church body. And so, what must we do in this as we consider our responsibility to gather together? Well, first, we must give careful thought to how we will stir one another up to love and good works. I want this to be a rhetorical exercise, okay? I want to ask you a question, but I want you to answer it rhetorically. Things are going to get really awkward and really embarrassing if anyone answers it out loud. Are you more likely to spend time giving thought to how you will address a wrong or how you will address somebody who has caused you grievance, somebody even in the church, are you more likely to give thought to that or to give thought to how you might stir up a brother or sister in the faith in love and good works? You see verse 24, let us uh, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us give thought to it. I think of how I'm going to respond to somebody who has angered me. I think of how I'm going to respond to somebody who I feel took a cheap shot. I think of how I'm going to respond to somebody who, 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 uh, who is just causing me trouble for some reason or another. And yet what the author of Hebrews says is, let us give thought to how we can stir one another towards love and towards good works. So how would you respond if somebody in the church approached you and said, hey, how can I just try to stir you up towards love and good works? First, you have to pick your jaw up off the ground because that'd be a real, really odd question. But may it not be so odd in our life together as a church? Perhaps you could ask a brother or sister if they would walk through a book of the Bible with you and study or walk, walk with them through a difficult or complicated situation in prayer. Maybe they're walking through or navigating a trying season of life and they could just enjoy a friend that they could have a meal with every week or two or sit down for coffee together. In our day, the most precious commodity that we can give to one another is our time. And what Hebrews is showing us is that the most precious time in the life of the church is the time that we are gathered together in worship. 
And so if we recognize the paramount way that we love and encourage and lift one another up through gathering together in our worship, let us consider how we approach this. Allow me to explore this diagnostically with all of us in the few moments we have left together. And I want us to all explore our own hearts together in this. I don't ask these questions as a means of, of being like, like, like the uh, teacher who's looking over her, her, over her glasses and telling a student he arrived three minutes late and he's out of line. I, look, I, ask these, I, I approach these questions pastorally for the sake of the growth and the, and the edification of our own souls. And if I'm honest, there, there are ways in which these questions even prompted and spurred my heart in a little bit of conviction and in need of a little correction in my attitude towards the gathering of the church week by week. First question, is worship attendance a baseline for you as long as something more interesting doesn't come along? Yeah, I'll go to church, but oh, I got an invitation to do this, or oh, I had this opportunity, maybe I'll do that. Occasionally something might come up that does derail us from being able to attend church. The question I'm asking is, is worship attendance just a baseline? If something comes up, that something that comes up seems to always win out. Is that the case with your heart? Other question, does gathering with the church always get the short end of the stick when compared with family or work or anything like that? I'm not trying to be a legalist in this. There are times where family obligations or family responsibilities or other factors prevent all of us from being able to attend worship. But the question is, once again, kind of along this baseline consideration, does, what gets priority if I were to be given truth serum? What gets greater importance? Does the gathering of the church kind of continually lose out? Do I easily find excuses to not attend worship? It's a tricky balance of COVID obedience, as we've seen over the last few years, which is demanded and instructed, I, I believe, in God's word, that we obey the government authorities who are over us. And so I don't believe we were wrong in closing down for a time in order to do what we needed to do in regards to COVID. But a danger that we see in Hebrews is we don't know specifically what the audience that the writer of Hebrews was addressing, but there was some issue that they were facing, even persecution perhaps, for the faith that was causing them to be hesitant to meet together to worship. But if you were to carefully read through the book of Hebrews, the, the, the danger that the church faced as the writer was addressing them was not persecution for the faith that they may lose their life, but that this persecution or some other factor that would keep them from gathering together might actually cause them to dry or cool out in their heart and their love and affection for God and in their trust in Him and belief in His gospel. COVID has provided all sorts of obstacles and all sorts of hindrances for churches all over the world. And we ought to be mindful of these, and we ought to be careful in our COVID considerations and in our practice of safe guidelines and protocols and all of these things to try to keep one another safe. But the most dangerous thing for any of us, whether it be COVID or anything else, the most dangerous thing for us is that COVID be a means by which our souls dry up and keep us from worshiping together and drift away from our God who has set us apart for himself. And so... Let me ask all of us who are gathered today. Are there some who, are, who have you, you have not seen around here in a while? Some who perhaps need a phone call or an invitation for coffee? There might be something wrong in a brother or sister's life and you don't know it or I don't know it. And a loving call or a loving text message or a loving email saying, hey, 
haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? Not in a means of coming down on them and bashing them, but in a means of comforting and addressing and ministering to their soul might be just what they need. Perhaps allow verses 24 and 25 to be an encouragement to reach out to a brother or sister you haven't seen in a while. But let's think of other considerations as we think about our responsibilities to gather together. How can we do this in a manner that is fruitful, in a manner that is appropriate, in a manner that, that makes the most use of the time? Well, let's think of our Sunday mornings. Before coming to church, I encourage you to listen to the songs that we're going to sing that week. Read the sermon text. Prayerfully prepare for worship. Look for opportunities to serve others even in helping them get to church. Prepare yourself for the service that is to come. And I said look for opportunities to serve others. There's a brother of ours who is going to hate me in about five seconds. But one of the great encouragements that he has brought to my soul since our replant began was how often, before COVID began, our own Danny sides, week by week by week by week, brought sweet hope to church every single Sunday. Stop leaving early from his house to pick Hope up, to pick her up, and then bringing her home after the service every single week. Our brother was modeling Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 for us. Maybe in the phone call that you give to somebody asking how they're doing, maybe there's a perplexing situation on Sunday mornings that makes it hard for them to get to worship, and maybe there's a way that you can try to serve them or you can bring it to our attention as a church and we can try to serve our brothers and sisters to enable them to be able to worship with the body. Other ways, as you arrive, look for those who are alone or look for those who you could get to know more. Even being willing to sit in a different place if it means that you welcome someone in or get to know them if you haven't had the opportunity to meet. We're all stuffy New England. Well, not we're all, I'm not, but most of you are stuffy New Englanders. And we like to keep our distance. We like to keep our boundaries. COVID has been good news for those of us who naturally practice social distancing anyway. You'll read the social cues on people if they don't want to talk. But at least make the effort to try to say hello and get to know somebody if you haven't had the opportunity to do so. Even if you say, okay, I recognize your face and we've been worshiping together for over a year, but allow me to come say hey and introduce myself. And if someone does that, and you've already introduced yourself to them ten times, and they've obviously forgotten their name, forgive them. Don't come down on them, okay? Let's all commit together on that. As we gather together, none of us would invite someone into our home for supper, and then most of us gather around the table, but, but push that outsider to go have their meal in a guest bedroom closed off from everyone else. Let's invite everyone into the feast of our fellowship together. In the worship service, that's before the service and as you arrive in the worship service, sing loudly, we sing the truths of the gospel that we might encourage our hearts in promises like verses 19 to 21. Jesus Christ has ripped down the curtain between God and man. Let us sing of that truth loudly. May we pray fervently. Join us in the prayers of praise and thanksgiving and in our pastoral prayers. This is one reason we have multiple people participate in our services. People doing prayers, people doing scripture readings, people... Uh, doing all sorts of other means because it's not a performance by those of us who are trained or are qualified or who have degrees in uh, seminary. It is, a, it is a gathering of a family of believers. As Natalie read the scripture this morning, she as a sister in our faith was ministering to each of us by bringing God's word to us that we may hear it. As Tim was praying, he was praying as a means of, 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 of voicing a prayer on behalf of the whole congregation that we might join our amen to his prayers before our God who loves us. 
Listen attentively to God's Word. As questions arise in your heart about, a, about something we read, don't hesitate to ask a question after the service and say, Stephen, I, you said this, I'm confused. Let, let me ask this a little further. I'm wrestling with it in this way. Don't be afraid to ask questions or wrestle with the text. Maybe even resolve to read the passage again that we preached on that morning before bed that night. And after the worship service, seek out conversations with others. Be willing to stick around for a bit if you are able. For some of us, the only real interaction that we will have with other followers of Jesus Christ is in that brief worship service on Sunday mornings each week. Let us try, if we are able, to try to stick around and be an encouraging voice, a comforting heart to those in our faith family who they may not encounter another Christian or only one or two of them again until the following Sunday. I encourage you also to try to find ways to participate in opportunities to get to know others in the church, like potlucks, growth groups, prayer meetings, etc. Now to be clear, because I don't want to sound like I'm beating everyone over the head, the, and I think the instruction here in Hebrews 10 is only towards the gathering on, the sun, on Sunday morning, the gathering of the church to worship. So I can't come to you and say, hey, you're sinning, you're not attending potlucks. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying all of us have a heart towards trying to get to know one another better. In 1874, in his ministry magazine, Charles Spurgeon shared of a conversation between a man who was a small part of a, 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 a part of a small church and another man who was seeking to understand that small church. The man who was outside the church began by asking, is it a strong congregation? Yes, was the reply. Well, how many members are there? This man replied, 76. 76, oh, they must be a very wealthy 76. No, they're poor. Well, then how do you say it's a strong church? Because, said the gentleman, they are earnest, they are devoted, they are at peace, they love one another, and they strive to do the master's work together. Such a congregation is strong, whether composed of a dozen or of 500 such members. Brothers and sisters, we began by giving careful consideration to what we would do if we won the lottery. How might my world change? What, what goes through my head as I consider a bountiful, bright, glorious, changed future? But may I encourage you that our gathering together in the worship of the saints is actually one step whereby we prepare for that future. And as we gather together and practice and, and, and sing and, and, and participate in worship together, we are doing something that keeps our minds set upon a future that is even far greater than any Powerball winnings. Look at the end of verse 25, or just all of 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is that day? It is the day of the return of Jesus Christ for His church. You recognize that as we come together in worship and in praise of God week by week, we are in a very real, real sense encouraging one another, hey, we're one week closer to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're one week closer to Him wiping away the tears from our eyes. We're one week closer from our sin that so, so, so um, befuddles and, and, and distorts and, and, and demeans our own hearts being nothing but a distant memory that that memory is, clo is washed clean by the blood of Christ. We're one week closer, brothers and sisters. Isn't that something that we need to hear in the midst of a topsy-turvy world where we are thrown upside down, left and right, every which way? We're one week closer. And we're reminding ourselves in this march in holiness and in righteousness and in pursuing our Lord Jesus Christ 
Week by week, we are trying to help one another hold on. I've described before uh, the church as, as maybe you've seen the, the, uh, a preschool or a small group of kids who they'll walk together uh, from one point to another. The teacher will have them all holding hands together. Sometimes I'll see it as the preschool here. They walk out to the playground and back, and the teacher has them all holding hands. And I think that's really cute, and I think that's also a really good illustration of the church. We're all kind of holding hands, trying to help one another so nobody falls aside, nobody gets left behind, all helping one another follow Christ, take one step further towards his kingdom. Let's resolve to do that together in our gathering together as a church body, week by week by week. As that day draws near, when that day arrives, we are going to be near to Christ and to one another for all of eternity. It is going to be heaven there. Perhaps the need of each of our hearts is for God to make it our prayer and our desire that the gathering with the body would be our heaven here. Gathering and rejoicing in our risen Lord Jesus who reigns over us. Brothers and sisters, our salvation before God is fully secured in Jesus. Let us resolutely draw near to him and faithfully draw near to one another. Would you pray with me? God, we give to you praise. We thank you for the gift of the church body, the gift of the church family. And we pray now, God, that you would help each of us to give careful thought to the cross of Christ, to give careful thought of our need for the sake of the good of our own souls to constantly draw near to Christ, to confidently draw near to Christ, knowing that He has ripped down the boundary between God and man, and through Him and through Him alone we can come before You. And let us draw near to one another that we may commit to helping each other draw near to Christ for the sake of the growth of our souls, for the sake of the good of our lives, for the sake of the witness of our church, for the sake of the glory of your name in your church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.